You know, I love Revelation. It's so encouraging. The study of end times, realizing what God has in store for us in the future. Um, And one of the things I love about what this gentleman said on this video is that there's all kinds of views, but regardless of which view you take, the main point is there. Um, The other thing that I would say is that when I was studying all the different views of Revelation, the way I finally resolved it was to just sit down and actually read it. And with some of the views, people would say things in different views, and I would actually read the book and say, that's not what this says. And the way that I picked the view that I took was to just say, what does it say? And so um, I love the book of Revelation. It is so encouraging. It is awe-inspiring. And one of the things that is just a constant encouragement to me is that there really is never anything new in Scripture. When you look at the Bible as a whole, it all communicates the same thing. And one of the things that the gentleman was talking about in this video is how things are very similar to Egypt and just throughout history. And the reality is God from the very beginning of time and from the very beginning of Scripture has been communicating himself in the same way. And that's not to say that Revelation doesn't get our attention that it doesn't really emphasize some of the things that God has been telling us in other places. So this is going to be a great study. We're going to read some of it today. We're going to look at three things. We're going to try to look at the tribulation period, which is a a period that is coming in the future. Um, One of the things I love about Revelation is that it answers many questions, like when? And in some ways, we could ask ourselves, when does this happen? Did it happen in the past? Or is it going to happen in the future? Well, God answers that. He says in the beginning of Revelation, these things are coming soon. Uh, He says in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 19, he says, I want you to write the things which you see, the things which are, and the things which will be. And so, you know, as I consider the book of Revelation, there are enough challenging things to figure out without adding to that the things that Jesus has clearly explained to us. So we just accept those things, and then we just try to figure out the other things. Um, The other thing that I want to just share with us this morning as you approach the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation was intended to be understood. God wrote it, and he didn't write it so that it would be a mystery that nobody could figure anything out. When we looked at Daniel chapter 12, verse 8 last week, Daniel says, but I I heard, but I did not understand. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. So Daniel wrote about this period. He didn't understand it. And God said, I've sealed it. But now that we have the book of Revelation 2210, This is how the book ends. It says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So the end of the book of Revelation emphasizes again, this time is near. So it's very similar to things that have been happening throughout history. But this is not a description of the past. This is a description of the future. And we need to make sure that nobody misses the point of Revelation. So we're going to look at three three sections in the book of Revelation. One is the tribulation period. It's God pouring out his wrath on mankind. Um, Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that people misunderstand the kindness of God. 
The kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. But because people stubbornly harden their heart, Romans tells us that they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. And so people misunderstand, but I'll just tell you, when you look at the tribulation period, it is God pouring out his wrath on mankind, his anger, punishment for people's sins, the people who have rejected him, the things that God does get, get their attention. But you see in that God's kindness because the entire tribulation period is a second chance. It's God saying, repent. And so we'll look at how that works out. I don't want to get going too soon. The second thing we're going to look at is the millennial period. Now, the millennium is how these different eschatological views it's how these different end-time views describe themselves. You've heard of premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. So those are like three main categories. Premillennial means that Jesus returns before the millennium, which is a 1,000-year reign of Christ. Postmillennial is that Jesus returns after the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Amillennial means no millennium, and it means that Jesus is, there's no earthly millennium. Jesus is just now reigning in heaven. I'm premillennial, and every single evangelical free church is premillennial. That's part of our doctrinal statement. And you may ask me, why are you premillennial? Well, when you read Revelation, Jesus comes back before the millennium. So <laughs> that's not a question I need to really try to figure out. The third thing that we're going to look at is eternity. When you think about eternity, um, God gives us a choice, doesn't he? We can accept him, we can repent and turn to him, or we can reject him. And when we consider eternity, what we find out is that's the only choice God gives us. You can embrace him or you can reject him. But what happens to you after you make your choice, you have no say in. Uh, there are many people who just feel like, as long as I sincerely believe something, well, then that's what I get. And they just imagine things about heaven and hell, and they imagine things about religion, and they just kind of make some stuff up and go, I'm going to pick that for myself, and I'm going to pick this for myself. One of the things that you realize when you read the book of Revelation is that Nobody gets a choice. God has decided. You can repent and turn to him, or you can reject him. That's the extent of your options. And so there's a lot of people who, they sincerely believe things, and they will be sincerely surprised. And so um, that's what we're going to be looking at in the book of Revelation as we look at the end times. And we're going to focus in not on the streets of gold or all the jewels, but we're going to focus in on actually what is heaven, what makes it what it is. So that's where we're headed. We'll see how it goes this morning. I want to start by giving you a timeline. And so if you look at this timeline, we have creation. The, the universe had a beginning. And then the period of Israel, and God in the Old Testament was working through the nation of Israel. He gave them his word, and they were supposed to be his missionaries reaching out to people. And we saw that they did not very often good at that, usually bad, and he punished them a lot. 
um, throughout the Old Testament period. But one of the things that happened right after Adam and Eve sinned is God promised that he would send a Messiah. And that's the cross. And so everybody in Israel that was a genuine believer was saved, looking forward to the coming Messiah, putting their faith in the Messiah who would come. And what's amazing, you read Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, and it describes Jesus, this person that would be punished for our sin, that our chastisement would fall on him. And so from the Old Testament, people knew that a Messiah was coming. And so Jesus came, and when Jesus came, we hit the church age. And by the way, that's where you and I are now. And that's Jesus working through the Gentiles, working in the church. And so if you're wondering where you are, that's where you are. We are right at the end of that period. Now, we have no idea how long that period's going to be. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we know he's coming back, and we know he's coming back soon. And so there's, there, there are a few uh, things that can be a little confusing, and so I want to just share a few things I'm going to throw up here for you. Um, one, you'll notice the rapture. The rapture is not described in the book of Revelation, but it happens during this period of time. And so we'll come back to a couple verses on that. I want to talk about uh, resurrections because you can be reading through Scripture and be kind of confused. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as a believer, the moment you die, you are in the presence of Jesus. But then you read in 1 Thessalonians about being resurrected, the dead in Christ rise first, and then those of us who are alive and remain, we rise. What does that mean? So the resurrection is when you get your, your body, your physical body. We're going to get a new body. And so there's three times that that happens. It happens at the rapture. All believers are given their glorified body, whether you've died in the past or if you're still living, we'll just go straight up into heaven and have a resurrected body. It happens at the, after Jesus returns, all of the Old Testament saints and everybody who dies during the tribulation period, they get a new body. And it also happens at the very end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ. That is when every unbeliever, every non-Christian throughout all time is given a body. And that is a special body designed to be in hell forever. And so everybody is resurrected, but the question is, where are you resurrected to? Now, there are also some judgments. There's a judgment of reward for believers, and these judgments all happen right around the same time as the resurrection. So there's the judgment of reward for believers that happens at the rapture. There's the judgment of believers and unbelievers described in Matthew chapter 25. That happens at the end of the tribulation. And then there's the great white throne judgment, the final judgment. And so we're going to read about that. Let me just show you the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So this is talking about people who have passed away. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's just telling them 
people who die before Jesus returns, they didn't miss their body. They're going to get their body first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, there's another thing as in, first, in 2 Thessalonians. There's a description of the restrainer. It talks about this antichrist who's going to come. And that's the Antichrist described in the book of Revelation. Now, this Antichrist is going to come, and this is something that Paul tells us. And just in considering the importance of end times, one of the first things that Paul teaches the Thessalonian believers is the doctrine of end times. Many times we think, oh, why is this important? I don't really know this. But it's one of the first things he taught. And so this is what he says. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is something that happens in the middle of the tribulation where the Antichrist says, worship me, I'm God. So he takes his seat, verse 5, do you remember that was, when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who, res- who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. So there's this discussion. What is it exactly that is restraining Satan's influence on earth? And I would just answer that by saying it's the Holy Spirit working through the lives of believers. Think about what our world would be like if you removed every Christian. Not a single Christian voting. Not a single Christian talking to anybody about this is how things should be or this is how things shouldn't be. The church is the light of the world. We're supposed to be salt and light, and the Holy Spirit, through the church, is restraining evil on earth. But at the rapture, that influence is going to be removed, and for seven years, there's going to be Satan working in the world. There's going to be the influence of all believers will be removed. Like, imagine what that time will be like. That's what's going to be happening during the tribulation. Okay, so... When we consider the tribulation period, actually, let me go backwards. I want to just show you what we're going to be talking about today. So Revelation chapter 1 through 3 talks about the church age. That was a message to those churches. Chapter 4 through 19 describe this tribulation period. Chapter 20 talks about the millennial reign of Christ. And chapter 21 and 22 talk about eternity. So those are the three sections that we're going to look at. Now let me just show you. Um, what happens in the hour of trial, the tribulation period. There's two, three and a half year um, uh, periods of the tribulation. And these numbers are given in the book of Revelation, also in the book of Daniel. And so what happens is God begins to pour out his wrath on mankind. And as he does that, there are seven seals which cover the entirety of the book of Revelation. The first six of them happen in the first three and a half years. Right in the middle, um, the Antichrist proclaims himself to be God, 
and God's wrath just gets ramped up and poured out on mankind even more powerfully. So the seventh seal is the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. So that's the seventh seal. It is actually all of those things. And then as you go through the trumpets, what you realize is that the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls of God's wrath. And so when you're reading the book, that's kind of what will make sense to you. You'll, you'll see that. I remember when I looked at a chart like this and then I read the book and I'm like, oh, that's actually what it says here. So let's just look at what those are. So the first seal is a white horse and there's this white horse that comes and they have a bow, but there's no arrow. And so that's conquering probably through peace and just through those kinds of things without war. So that's the first thing the Antichrist begins to conquer. The second seal is death. Now there's fighting. Everybody's dying because of wars everywhere. The next one is famine. God sends famine on the earth. And so people now are dying because they can't get food. And then there's a pale horse, and this is the death of 25% of mankind. And it says that God just continues to kill people through war, through famine, through animals. Animals start attacking people. People are just dying everywhere. God wipes out 25% of the population of the earth. Now, the fifth, the fifth seal is a scene in heaven of martyrs. And so you have all these Christians in the tribulation period, these people who have put their faith in Christ, and they've been killed. And they are under God's throne, and this is the, the judgment, is those believers are sitting in God's throne, they're looking at God, and they're saying, God, when will you take vengeance on the earth because of what they've done to us? Now, can you imagine a child of God in God's presence praying for justice, and you're the one who killed them? Like, that is a, a terrible judgment coming on the earth. But you want to know what Jesus says? He says, vengeance is coming, but not enough of my people have died yet. I want more of my people to be martyred, and when the number is complete, then I'll bring vengeance. Then there's cosmic distress. Now, there's all kinds of lightning and earthquakes, and, and if you've grown up in Southern California, you understand earthquakes. I remember in, uh, I think it was 1994, there was an earthquake that was not too far from our house. Um, I was up at a winter camp with a bunch of kids, and we went to breakfast. We were in Big Bear, and the guy gets up, and he has this really ominous look on his face, and he's saying, they've closed the 14, they've closed the 118, like he's describing all the, houses, all the streets around where I live. And I'm just sitting at breakfast going, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe they got snow all the way down there. <laughs> like I had no idea they closed these roads because all the freeways fell down. And I remember sitting there and looking at these freeways that took them years to rebuild them. And they built them better and they built them stronger. And then I thought about this earthquake and it's like, you can rebuild those things as strong as you want. God can shake them down any moment he decides. But in this earthquake, the sixth seal, it's so powerful that it says that every mountain on earth is moved. Um, do you remember the earthquake that happened in Japan? I think it was 2011. Did you know that the island of Japan moved eight feet? It, it's physically in a different location after that earthquake. And, and an earthquake is going to be so severe that that happens to the entire earth. And then you see the trumpets. So now this is happening in the second half of the tribulation, and you see how 
many more uh, judgments there are. So a third of the earth is burned up, and then a third of the sea is destroyed, and then a third of the fresh water is destroyed, and then a third of the sun and the moon and the, st- are, and the stars are darkened. And so you just see that these devastating effects. And some people would say, well, I think maybe this happened in the past. And I'm thinking, at what point was a third of the ocean destroyed and every ship and every fish? Like, these kinds of things have not happened on earth yet. And then after that, after a third of those things, um, an angel comes out and just says, woe. Woe because of the plagues that are going to be coming. The ones that are coming next are going to be really bad. And then what's described is these creatures, probably demonic creatures that look like scorpions, and they go around stinging people. And people are in agony and they're suffering for five months, and they can't die. They want to die, but they cannot die. They're just in agony for five months. And then... Um, these demons go and they, they gather up people and they're riding throughout the earth and a third of mankind is wiped out and destroyed. And then comes these final bowls of God's wrath that gets poured out on the earth. And so the, the bowls are the seventh trumpet. And so God strikes people with terrible sores all over their body. The sea, the entire thing, the first time a third of the sea was destroyed, now everything in the sea is destroyed. Uh, with the seventh trumpet, or the second trumpet, a third of the sea was, or I'm sorry, um, the, the third trumpet, a third of the fresh water was destroyed. Now all of the, the water is destroyed. People are struggling with scorching heat. Darkness is on the Antichrist's um, area. The Euphrates dries up. Demon armies gather people for war. So that's that sixth bowl. One of the things that happens is part of God's punishment on people is to allow demons to go gather them all up to come fight against God. And so the judgment is, yeah, gather yourselves, go fight against me. That's actually their punishment is they're, they're gathering themselves for destruction. And then there's thunder, there's lightning, there's 100-pound hailstones. Just God just starts pouring out his wrath on earth. Um, those kinds of things have never happened. I remember last time I taught on this in youth group, I, I got all my, I had a bunch of old plastic lawn equipment, lawn chairs, lawn table, and I brought it all to the church. And then I, I stopped by the store and bought all these 15-pound blocks of ice, and I climbed up on the roof of the church. And so I read the story. I brought all the kids outside, and I just started taking these 15-pound blocks of ice and throwing them off the roof, and, and my furniture was really brittle and plastic, and it just shattered, and it's going everywhere. And, and then I said, now imagine that's 15 pounds falling off the roof of the church. Imagine a 100-pound hailstone falling out of the sky, the devastation. There is nowhere to hide. That's God pouring out his wrath on earth. Um, that's God saying, this is who I am and this is what happens to people who shake their fist in my face and who want to reject me. Now, that's God's wrath, right? The tribulation, we do see God's wrath, but we also see his mercy. We see his mercy and his love. And the, the, the way that we see that is that God's taken every believer off the earth, right? But he sends evangelists to preach the gospel 
to share the gospel with people. It's a call to be saved. One of the things that you discover in this revelation period, in this period of tribulation, nobody is saying, I can't believe in God. I just don't believe God exists. Um, I, nobody says that. There are no evolutionists in the uh, period of, the tri of tribulation. God shows himself very clearly. Nobody is questioning that. But then he sends messengers, messengers of hope. There are 144,000 um, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. And everybody says, who are the 144,000? Well, there are 144,000 Israelites, and there's 12,000 Israelites from each tribe. How do I know that? Well, that's what it says. <laughs> and part of this is God working with his chosen people, the people of Israel, bringing them back to himself. If you read Romans chapter 11, he's already explained that that's going to happen. And so these 144,000, they are preaching the gospel, and, and they're described in Revelation chapter 7, but what happens right after that is it talks about all of these people who are saved and who are in heaven from every tongue and tribe and nation. People are just getting saved because of the preaching of these 144,000 people that God sends. And this is the other thing, as wicked and as sinful as the time is during this tribulation period, these 144,000 people, they live faithful, holy lives. One of the things that characterizes this period of time is sexual immorality and debauchery. And these 144,000 Israelites are virgins. They're, they're morally pure people in a time that is wicked. And one of the things you realize is no matter how bad things are, you can live a faithful life. These people do. God also sends two witnesses. And there's a big debate about who those witnesses are. Some people say it's Elijah and Enoch. Why would it be Elijah and Enoch? Yeah, those are the two people in the Old Testament that never died. God just took them up into heaven. And there are other views as to who they might be. Um, you, want me, you want me to tell you who I think they are? I don't know. Because <laughs> when I read the book of Revelation, it doesn't say. So I don't know who they are, but I know that there's going to be two people who are coming and who are going to witness and be sharing the gospel. And as they preach... When the Antichrist and his forces try to attack them, they kill whoever tries to attack them. They just breathe fire out of their mouths. They destroy anybody who attacks them, but they are preaching the good news. And in fact, people hate them so much that when they die, they, lay in, they just leave their bodies in the streets for three and a half days. And everybody, it's like Christmas. Everybody starts giving each other gifts. They're so glad those two people are finally dead. And then a voice from heaven says, come up here. And they go up, and then there's this massive earthquake where 7,000 people die. And right after that, it says people were terrified, and they gave God glory. So again, God saves people through that ministry. Then God sends three angels. And these angels go throughout the, they go throughout the sky, and here is their message. Um, the one has a message of fear God and give him glory. And it says that they preach the eternal gospel. Again, God sharing the gospel with people. Um, another one just goes around saying Babylon has fallen. It reminds me of the message that Jonah gave to Nineveh when he went through the streets. And he just said, um, God's coming to destroy you all. 
That was his message. And they all repent and get saved. And so God sends an angel to, to give that same message. Babylon's fallen. By the way, everybody mourns, like as, as the city and as their system. Like they love it. It's a party of just, just sinfulness. And, and they're loving everything that's going on. And they're so depressed and so upset as they see their sinful lifestyle just crumbling. But this angel's proclaiming and is saying, this thing you live for, it's gone. I'm destroying it. And then the other angel it's a warning against worshiping the beast. And, and so the New Testament says that there's an unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we struggle to figure out what is that? Well, what's communicated by this third angel is that if you worship the beast and you take the mark of the image, there is no forgiveness for you. You seal your eternal fate. And one of the amazing things about God is in all this, we see who he is, but there's always the offer of repentance. If you repent, if you turn to me, I will forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong. It doesn't matter what is broken in your life. It doesn't matter how many times you blow it. I am here. I am loving. I am compassionate. Like you think about Jesus in Hebrews, the merciful high priest who knows how we feel. God's mercy and God's love is meant to make us run to him, not to disregard him, not to take him for granted. And so you see that is some, some people, um, some people respond in repentance and forgiven, forgiveness and they're saved. Um, but there's other people after the sixth seal, this is the earthquake that makes every mountain move. This is people's response. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great is their day of, for their great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? Whose wrath is this that's being poured out? It's the wrath of the Lamb. And we see Jesus in his love and his mercy and his forgiveness, but he is also a judge. And they see this, and basically all they have to do is bow their knee, God forgive me, and they'll be forgiven, but they'd rather be crushed by a rock than to give God glory. And you see that in the bowls. Um, this refrain that's just repeated, and they did not repent to give God glory. They did not repent of their deeds. And they cursed God for the plagues and the hail because the plague was so severe. And it tells you, God's pouring out his wrath, but that is meant to lead you to repentance. And if you harden your heart, you're going to be crushed and destroyed. Um, that's... That's the message here. Now, as we consider that, let me just ask you, is that a new concept? Like when you open up the Bible, have you ever seen that before? Um, what about during the flood? God sends Noah, and he says, Noah, I'm going to drown everybody. So build a boat and invite everyone to join you in the boat, and they'll be saved. And the Bible tells us that for 120 years, Noah was preaching to people. And they laughed. They mocked. They said, ah, things are going to go on the way they've always gone on. This is never going to happen. 
And then it must have got their attention when two of every kind of animal lined up to get on the ark. And then Noah and his sons and their wives get on the ark. And then the door closes. And all those people who had an opportunity to get in the boat didn't get in the boat. And then it rains and every one of them drowns. Um, have we seen God calling out to people and then judging sin? H how about the conquest in Cana? Remember how God says to Israel, go into the land of Cana and wipe out every man, woman, child, and animal and take nothing. Remember that? So God gives the land of Cana to Abraham. And then he says to Abraham, but their wickedness is not yet complete. And he gives them 400 years to repent. And after 400 years, the whole reason Abraham went into Egypt and all that time, there's this big, huge gap, was because God was saying, I am going to give those people time to repent. And after 400 years, they didn't repent. And he sent Israel out and he said, you are my divine spanker. Go wipe them all out. So have we ever seen that before? Like this stuff in Revelation, it gets your attention, but it's not new. God judges, judges sin. He gives you an opportunity to repent. But if you don't take that opportunity, you face devastation. Um, so when we look at this timeline, that's the tribulation. And it ends with the second coming of Christ. And so I want to look at that right now. Do you remember the Christmas story? Well, the Easter story where Jesus goes and he dies and then he's resurrected. Do you remember this verse? We read it at Easter time. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus came humble. He rode into town. Um, there was a great celebration, but then they took Jesus, they beat him up, they crucified him. And do you remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate and Pilate's asking him these questions? And Jesus just doesn't answer. And what does Pilate do? He says, Jesus, huh, how could you not answer me? I hold your life in my hands. And Jesus says, you, have, you would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you. Jesus was there willingly. He was there humbly. Um, those soldiers, they punched Jesus. They jammed a crown of thorns on his head. Um, they mocked him. That has new meaning when you read the second coming of Jesus and you realize who they did that to. Because sometimes we read about those stories and the abuse that Jesus took and we just feel like, oh, Jesus is great, he's loving. But we are not shaken by the fact that a human being did this to the all-powerful God. And so Jesus rode in the first time on a donkey as a humble person but the next time he comes, people are going to see who he is. And I actually would like to read that to you. Um, sometimes I, I say things that are emotionally traumatic for people. Um, and I always prefer not to ever use my own words for that. I would rather just let God say it himself. And so I want to let God tell about his second coming himself. I thought this was interesting. Sometimes people say when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a bloodbath. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Well, I say we read it. 
Revelation 19.11, Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, array in fine linen with white pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Why? What is the purpose of it? Well, let's look at that. It says, from his mouth comes a, sh- a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and thigh was his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So now what's the impact of that? I mean, that seems pretty clear, but let's go on and read more. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of men both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the, so he's wiping people out, his enemies, people who have gathered to kill his anointed ones, he wipes them out. Um, It's just like in Egypt, right? God brings Israel out and then drowns the entire Egyptian army. This is different than that in the sense of a different event, but it's the same kinds of things. This is Jesus coming back, and then he deals with the beast and Satan and these people that have been doing all these things. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured And with it, the false prophet who is in his presence and who had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And then the rest, this is everybody who had joined forces with them, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds gorged with their flesh. So... This is an incredible massacre where God says, if you're going to stand against me, I'm going to wipe you out. And that's what happens here when Jesus comes back. And then the millennial period, this is Jesus' reign on earth. This was foretold in the Old Testament that Jesus would come and sit on the throne of David and that he would reign on earth. And it says in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the th- thousand years had come to an end, and then he must be released for a little while. So Jesus reigns on earth, and I'm just going to jump right to the end. At the end of the millennium, Satan's released, and he actually is able to go and convince more people to follow him against God. Like after all these things, you wouldn't think that would happen, but I have to say I'm always surprised that Satan could convince some demons to follow him, 
like you have all these angels in heaven. And I, I would love to have heard that conversation. Hey, um, let's all gather together and fight against God. Like, how do you convince angels who live with God to do that? And yet Satan did that, and he does that again with people, and then there's another judgment there. So let's just talk about eternity. There are two options in eternity. Um, Basically, one of the things we find out is that God ultimately wins, and there are two options, Uh, an eternity separated from God or an eternity in God's presence. Those are our options. I'll just read to you the, the, the final judgment, Revelation 27. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his pit prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, and then they're gathered, and then they're destroyed. And then at the end, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Matthew 25 says that God created hell for the devil and his angels. But what we find out here is the devil and his angels are not the only ones in hell. Look at this, verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to all that they have done. And then skip down to verse uh, 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's one option. That is an option for anybody who does not come to God in repentance. And right now God's being merciful and gracious and kind, but that day is coming and it's coming for everyone. But here's the better option. I would encourage you all to choose this. It's the choice I've made. Uh, especially based on reading all these things. It's, it's what I pick. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no sea. I won't comment on that. And I saw a holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard the voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. The greatest thing about heaven, and I'll end here, the greatest thing about heaven is not the streets of gold. It's not the jewels. It's not what you might do in heaven The greatest thing about heaven is you will have a perfect relationship with God. Now think about the most meaningful thing in your life. I like dirt bike riding. Um, But you know what? If I got to go dirt bike riding by myself, it is not near as fun as when I go dirt bike riding with somebody I care about, with a brother-in-law, when we're going and we're just doing things that are really fun, or sitting in the car driving there, and being able to talk to a person and say, hey, this is what's going on in my life. This is what I'm struggling with. And to have a person that you just know, they love you, they care about you, they encourage you. When you think about relationships, those are the most valuable, the most sweet things that there are in life. 
far more than your things, far more than anything else that you do. It's a relationship with a person. Now consider this about heaven. The thing so amazing about heaven is that you have that intimate, personal relationship with God, with the God of the universe, the best person to be relationally close to and to be known and to, and to be able to know. And so that's the greatest gift in heaven is that God gives us himself. Now, along with that, we're going to see a bunch of other people that we know that have died and gone before us. That's going to be wonderful. There's going to be streets of gold. There's going to be all these other great things. But what makes heaven heaven is personal intimacy with the God of the universe that's unhindered. And we have that now, but it's not unhindered, is it? And so that's heaven. Those are our options. And I would suggest that everybody choose heaven. God says you can. He says there's nothing that will stop you from forgiveness, from reconciliation, other than a refusal in your own life to repent. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for your word. And Lord, this is awesome. And as we think about the Apostle John, he saw all this and he just said, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we want you to come. Help us to live in light of this, that we would warn people, that we would encourage them, that we would share the good news. And Lord, that we would live most of all just to please you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your kindness and all that you give us in your name. Amen.